Psalm 117 this morning, what a marvelous psalm. I will tell you that Ben Griffith this morning, who with the joy of the Lord and the opportunity of serving our sister congregation, Christ Community Church, in preaching there this morning for Randy Lovelace, who's the senior minister there, who's out this morning. So we need to be praying for Ben as he serves uh, the word of the Lord and preaches to them. But Ben has uh, served so faithfully over the course of this summer, he actually crafted for us this sermon series. So if you've been blessed by these messages during the month of July, please extend that encouragement to um, our brother. And I've taken these assignments from him, and he gave me Psalm 117 uh, this morning to be able to preach to you, and what a joy uh, it is to be able to open up this word. I've missed being with you, and so I have at least two hours carved out for this message just simply to <laughs> catch up on my time away. So just settle in, get you some, you know, get you some goodies, some food, coffee, whatever you need, and, and we'll uh, look at this text together. All right, wonderful text. Let's look here, Psalm 117. This is God's word. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, now as we spend a few minutes here in your word from Psalm 117, we pray that you would do a mighty work in the life of all of us here in this room. For those who are joining us via live stream, for those who are in overflow this morning, wherever it is, the cast of this word and my voice goes, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would attend it closely. Have us to read this word, to mark it, and yes, to inwardly digest it that it would become for us your very word, living and true in our own hearts and lives. Would you now bring about that change, even as you know what our souls desperately need? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. No, you could actually get, I, I imagine you could get somewhat excited when you see me read a passage like Psalm 117. You see how short it is, and you think to yourself, we're going to get off easy today. Well... You're not. You're not. They're laughing over here. They're, you're not going to get off easy today. No, I want you to know that sometimes the greatest gifts come in the smallest packages. And uh, that is very true with Psalm 117. It is a small package, but it is a great gift. In fact, it is, as some of you may know, the shortest psalm in all of the Psalter. And even more than that, it's the shortest psalm or the shortest chapter in the whole of the Bible. And yet the smallness of this chapter is not to be confused with its insignificance. For this tiny psalm really does pack a gospel punch for every single one of us. I love what several of the commentators said about this psalm. Derek Kidner writes, The shortest psalm proves in fact to be the most potent and seminal. Michael Dehude says, the shortest of all the Psalms is theologically one of the grandest of all. And our favorite Baptist theologian C.H. Spurgeon says, in its spirit, for bursting beyond the bounds of race and nationality, it calls upon all mankind to praise the name of the Lord. Indeed, that is true. This small Psalm, deep 
with significance both biblically and theologically. But beyond its smallness, Psalm 117 is actually strategically located in the Bible. In fact, you're probably aware that the chapters in the Bible and the verses in the Bible, at least those that you've got there in your English text, were added much later. They were not in the, the original autographs of uh, the, the manuscripts that the disciples and the prophets used in writing the scriptures and were not translated with chapters and verses for many, many centuries. It wouldn't be until the 1500s that chapters and verses became common in our biblical text. And they were used for reference so that you could easily uh, find them. It was a, really a tool for education and discipleship. And yet when the chapters in the Bible were set in place and you collected the number of all of the chapters, the chapter number for the whole of the Bible is 1,189 chapters. That's what's in the Bible. And as the Lord would have it, 595 is right in the middle of 1,189. And as the Lord would have it, that is Psalm 117. The very shortest chapter in all of the Bible is actually the most centrally located of all of the chapters in the Bible. Now, I don't want to make too much hay of that per se, especially since the fact that the chapters are not original to the Bible. But it is to say that at the very center of the message of the Bible is the very center of the emphasis of what we see should be in a Christian's life. And what you see as priority in Psalm 117 is the fact that our worship of the Lord is central. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. Worship is the focus of this text. And yet, within this text on worship, we see underneath an incredible call to the, wor to, the, to the work of global missions. And that's the two things that we're going to be really focusing on this morning. The importance of worship as the central call of the believer's life, but then global missions being the burden and the heart of every Christian in the world. And so with those two um, components in view, I want to actually look at this text in three ways with you this morning. Number one, I want you to see the mandate to worship. The mandate to worship. It's right there in verse 1 in our text. And then I want you to see, secondly, the motivation for worship. The motivation for worship. It's right there in verse 2 in our text. And then finally, I want you to see the mission that's behind worship. The mission that's behind worship in this teaching is really implied throughout the instruction of the whole of Psalm 117. So verse 1, the mandate to worship. Verse 2, the motivation for worship. And then point 3, the mission behind worship, which is implied throughout all of the teaching of Psalm 117. So we're going to start with that mandate to worship. Doesn't require, uh, you know, a master's in, in biblical exegesis or scholarship to see this clear point. Uh, number one, look at that verse with me. Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples. The instruction from the psalmist here is coming to you and to me in the imperative voice, which you English lovers out there know to be the commands of the Scripture. 
Uh, the psalmist is not in any way soft-pedaling or suggesting or thinking it would be a good idea if you would consider maybe worshiping. That's not the tone of this text. The tone of this text is one of a mandate. He is commanding us to praise the Lord, to extol Him, to make known His glorious greatness. Now, you might ask yourself, why is the psalmist commanding us to worship, maybe you're actually asking yourself, why is worship so important in the Christian tradition? Why is it considered the central call of the Christian's life? And there's many good answers, many good biblical answers we could appeal to if that question is actually sitting on your mind. But I want to simply note this for you this morning. He commands us to worship because the Lord has designed us first and foremost as worshipers. That's how the Lord has designed us as human beings. First and foremost, we are designed by God as worshipers. And I want to just simply make that appeal through your own empirical experience. You know that when you go through life, you go through life constantly looking for something to praise. You may not have thought of your life as a as a journey or pursuit of something to praise, but that's exactly what your life is all about. And when you find that thing that is worthy of praise, that is valuable, that you find exciting or you find joy-giving, what do you do? Well, you rejoice in it. <laughs> you, you praise it. And then you know what else you do? You talk about it with others. You share about it with others. You become evangelists of that thing. It may be a person. It may be a place or a location that you visited. It might be a, a new product that you've come across that you think everybody in the world ought to use. We actually long to see those around us join with us in the things that we think are valuable and to unite with us in the praise of those things. And we labor to actually persuade them of their goodness. That's built into us. That doesn't, I mean, it doesn't matter if that's a hair product or a favorite sports team or a new movie or a certain line of clothing. We are by nature looking for something to praise, something that we would consider valuable. And then we rejoice in it and we want to tell others about it. We do that instinctively because we are designed as worshipers. That's just that's who God has actually made us to be. It's why the Westminster Shorter Catechism actually starts off all of its Q&A with a focus on worship. Now, you may not have thought of the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism as focusing on worship because it's talking about man. But the fact is, it's talking about man's identity and purpose, but what its real focus is, is on worship. Notice the question is this. What is the chief end of man? In other words, what is the purpose of human existence? Why is it that we're here? And maybe some of you are going, that's a great question. Why is it that I'm here? What is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Do you see? That's worship. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to uh, enjoy Him forever. Our highest calling is right there. That's why when we were founding Cornerstone Presbyterian Church some 11 years ago, and we began to craft a vision statement to really talk about what we as a local congregation will be committed to, we started to say, okay, fellowship is critical. 
Discipleship is essential. We must be about missions, both local and abroad. That's a part of the Lord's calling in, in the Scripture for the church. But the first and foremost calling of the church is to worship the Lord. And so when we crafted that vision statement, you can see at the very front of it is the focus on worship. We exist, Cornerstone Presbyterian Church exists, to glorify God in the gospel. That's, that's our first statement with regards to what it is we're called to be and to do. And that's because it's our eternal calling. We said a handful of weeks ago, discipleship's going to eventually end. Uh, missions is going to be no more. Mercy ministry is going to go by the wayside. Worship will last forever. It'll last forever in eternity before the throne of grace. This is why we exist to glorify God. And so it's no surprise, is it, that when you look at the Ten Commandments, that the very first of the commandments has to deal with having no other gods before me. It really deals with worship. Where is the priority of God in the quote-unquote list of priorities of your life? And God says, you should have no other gods before me. He, he is to be number one. He is to be chief among them all. Now, we start the commandments that way in Exodus chapter 20, and the, and the reason for it is, What's really wrong with you and I is actually embedded in this dialogue of worship as well. You can imagine if worship is our highest calling and we actually go through life primarily rejoicing in other things other than God and oftentimes looking to the things of the world rather than to God, then the problem at the core of the human being is not that we're liars. It's not that we're cheats. It's, it's not that we're, we're eaten up with anger and resentment. You know what our real problem is? We have a worship disorder. At the very center of our being, we look to the things of the earth to give us what only God can give us. Paul puts it this way in Romans 1. He says, we've exchanged the truth for a lie, and we worship the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Isn't that true? Don't you find that when you come back into worship on Sunday and you look over the course of your week, you're like, yep, I lived as if my job was the most important thing about me. I lived as if my spouse was the most important thing about me. I lived as if my comforts were the most important things about me. And here I am, a miserable wreck, dragging myself into church again. And that preacher is probably going to tell me I've done something wrong. And I need to focus upon the Lord as the priority of my life. And we leave and we go, aha, it's the same thing he told me last week. I should, I should think about adhering to that this week and following it, right? This is the struggle of our life. We have actually at the core of our being a worship disorder. We've looked for our purpose and our meaning and our satisfaction in the things of this world. And surprise, surprise, we've been disappointed. They haven't been able to fulfill what only God can fulfill. Just a word of wisdom here. Earthly things can never satisfy the divine design that your heart is longing for. It never will. That's why you suck it into your heart and immediately as soon as that vacation's over, you're ready for something else. That sort of hungry, never satisfied heart is an indicator of the fact that you've got to go to the well that quenches your thirst. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been made for the Lord. Now, here's what I want you to see that the Lord is doing here. Because maybe some of you could even you might recoil a little bit at this idea of being commanded to worship. I want you to see that when God commands you to worship Him, what He's commanding you is be who you are. He's commanding you according to your design. We often think of his commands as often like restricting us in what we really want in life. You know, like I'd rather do something else. I'd rather be something else. But God commands me to come to worship on Sunday morning. 
Well, actually, when God commands you to come to work, what he's doing, he's commanding you according to your design. Which means that his instruction to you is meant to increase your joy, not limit it. When you live according to your calling, when you live according to your design, what happens? You flourish. Your joy and your happiness are the fruit of that sacrifice and care, right? That's when God's commands are given to you in that way. Rather than hearing them as, oh, something i got to keep. Oh, something I'd really rather do something else. Refrain, refresh your mind and renew your heart and say, God never commands out of accord with design. If he's telling me not to do this, it's because though I think it will be better for me, it's not. And if he tells me to do this, even though I don't want to do it, I know that doing it is actually going to be what's good for me and is going to cause flourishing, going to increase my joy, and it's going to be for his glory. Every one of God's commands is like that. And that's so important for our own generation to hear because don't we want to hear commands? We have a tendency to think that God's this cosmic killjoy. He's, he's you know, standing in heaven ready to slap your hand for the things that you've done wrong. He's actually, with the commands, hemmed you into a playground. He's saying, listen, the fences that I've put around your life are not intended to restrain you. They're intended to release you into the design for which I've made you. You know, when we abuse those commands and when we trace over them, they're called trespasses, right? You've gone over into territory that you shouldn't have gone. I thought Adam and Eve probably thought that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was going to work out really well for them. Come to find out, God gave them that command because he loved them. And he wanted their flourishing. How many of us can look back on our lives when we thought, oh, remember when we were making our own decisions and doing our own thing and we had, we had figured it out better than our parents and every generation previous and we were going to live this sort of way and we did it for 48 hours and we thought, I feel miserable. Why did I do this, right? And you're like, ah, oh, maybe there's something to this thing. Maybe God's made me a certain way. Know that as God calls you into worship, he calls you there because he wants to see you flourish. He wants to see your joy increase. You've been designed as a worshiper of the living God. We have a mandate to worship here. And I want to pause just for a second and say, I know for some of us in here, it's a question I get pastorally, and so I want to address it a little bit today. We wrestle with, with the command to worship because we often don't desire, even as Ethan alluded to earlier in the confession of sin, we often don't desire to worship as we ought, right? Some of us are here and we really just don't want to be here. And is it okay to be here and not want to be here and be worshiping and my heart not be entirely in it, right? Is that really the worship that God wants? Can we even call that obedience? And some of you are like, yes, please tell me, right? <laughs> please tell me, can I call that obedience? Well, that, I'm going to give you a really helpful answer. Yes and no, right? Really helpful answer. Let me back up and just explain for a second. We have a tendency to think that unless we have been fully obedient, and we mean fully like perfectly obedient, we've done everything right, and you know, we can't really call it obedience, I see this a lot in people. They'll say things like, well, you know, I did what the Lord said to do. Well, I know I don't always do what the Lord says to do. And I know there was probably something wrong inside of me even when I went and did that. And I'm like, yes, 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 yes. But is it okay to say like I actually did what God commanded to do? And just pause, like hard stop, not have to caveat it or anything. Is it okay to do that? Well, I'd like to suggest yes with some nuance. All right, so it's one of the things that happens in the Bible is very often people are called to, they're even declared righteous 
Or there are people who are called commandment keepers, and then they still are those who fall short and have sin. They're not perfect. Uh, the great example is, is Zechariah, the, John the Baptist's father. You, you remember he's described in Luke chapter 1 as a man who is righteous before the Lord, who walks at his commands and statutes. Man, wouldn't you like that to be said of you? And you're like, yep, that'll never be said of me, right? And then 10 verses later, it says that Zechariah doubted the words of Gabriel, and the Lord in discipline muted him so he couldn't talk until the baby was born. Same things, same chapter, same man. It described as a man who's righteous before the Lord, living according to his commandments and statutes, and doubting Gabriel and being disciplined by the Lord. Do you know what that tells us? It tells us Zechariah is a person. It tells you he's a man, that he actually obeys the Lord and in his obedience often falls short, that even his obedience is weak in his shortcomings. But side by side with the righteous things that he does, he's continuing to fall short. This is the reality of what it means to be a fallen human person in the world who is striving to even obey the Lord, even as you are this morning, even coming into the context of of worship. Know this, that anytime you have obeyed the Lord, even if it's only a measure of obedience, and let's be honest, it's only ever a measure of obedience. Nobody in here is perfect as the, as, and white as the driven snow, right? We all have battles and struggles that are going on within us. But to the measure that you've been obedient, you know what we should do? We should rejoice in that because never are you obedient without the grace of God at work in you. Right, so for some of you in here, you're like, I almost didn't come to church. And I drug myself in the back door to get here. But now that I'm here, God's not pleased with me because I don't want to be here. Well, let me just tell you, he's pleased you're here. Congratulations, you made it. Praise the Lord. You know what? You getting here is evidence of his work. Let's rejoice in that. Now, let's repent for your heart. Let's repent about your attitude. You, you know that's going to always be the case as you're walking in the Christian life? You'll have something to rejoice in and something to repent of? Always. Always. You know, you're singing the hymns from earlier and you're like not, you know, making your shopping list as you do so. Praise the Lord, you are singing. Some of you haven't started singing yet. We'll get to you. Right? Praise the Lord, you are singing. And let's repent for making our shopping list. Here's encouragement. He commands you to repent. And so if you do, you've been obedient. Praise the Lord. And you know, have you noticed this? We build repentance into the service. Have you noticed it? We expect that you're going to have stuff going on with you as it's going on with me in the midst of a service. That's why we have this thing called confession of sin. We've got to learn to actually live with the rejoicings of what God's actually doing in our life and give Him the praise for it while at the same time repenting of the things that we don't yet do. The glory of our Lord is that He builds grace into the commands that He calls us to by giving to us the grace of repentance. By giving to us the grace of repentance. Now, this actually helps us know the love and character of our God in such a degree where we want to worship Him. Do you feel that right now? As, as some of you are like, oh, it's okay to actually 
lose my train of thought in the midst of the sermon, like right now, and then as Nate is speaking to me, I'm finally recovering it and coming back and pausing and saying to the Lord, Lord, forgive me, I've... I'm just such a foolish man and a woman. Please try to help me stay tuned for the next three seconds so that I can learn from your word because I really want to learn from your word. Do you know that's perfectly acceptable? He rejoices in that. He rejoices in the truthfulness of it. He rejoices in your seeking of grace of it. He rejoices in your desire to want to be the person that you're not yet. And he will answer that prayer. He will work in you through it. This is the joy of Christian worship. This is the dynamic that's taking place in this room. And the Lord is flooding us with grace in that. Now, does your heart now feel joy as we're speaking about these things? You know, that's actually what's going on in Psalm 117. It's actually point two as we look at Psalm 117 together. We're commanded to praise the Lord. We're mandated to, command, to praise the Lord. But notice why. What's the motive for worship? Verse two, for great is his steadfast love towards us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Right? All of a sudden when you begin to learn that the Lord actually loves you in the midst of your failures, but your strivings in commandment keeping, he rejoices in. And then as you repent, he floods you with the grace you need to grow into the person you're called to be. And all that's a part of his plan. Your heart begins to fill up with joy and peace. It begins to fill up with worship. Because what, what are you looking at? You're looking at his steadfast love. His steadfast love and his faithfulness is filling your heart. And, and I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be embarrassed if some of you in this room actually wanted to, to shout, praise the Lord, right? When you, when you heard that. Or, or, or rejoice in the fact that that is dawning on your soul again. And if you feel something of God's worship welling up within you because you've gazed upon his steadfast love and faithfulness, that just means the Lord's at work. Praise his name. You know, that word that's used here about steadfast love in Psalm 117 is the Hebrew word hesed. It means God's committed and covenant love. It's this never-let-you-go kind of love. The love that makes promises and keeps promises. The reason that's so important is that Psalm 117 traditionally would have been sung by the people of Israel during the Passover. Um, Psalm actually 113 to 118 is called the Hallel Psalms. And you can hear in the word Hallel the, the beginning of the word hallelujah, right? Hallel, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Hallel, praise. These are psalms of praise. They would have been sung during the Passover celebration. Psalm 113 and 114 would have been sung before the meal, and Psalm 115 to 118 would have been sung after the meal. Now, here's why that's important. This means that when the people of Israel would have sung Psalm 117, they would have been thinking about the greatest event of redemptive history in the Old Testament. What's Passover about? It's about the people of Israel's rescue from bondage from Egypt and his salvation of his people through great signs and wonders. That's what they're remembering. And as they teach that to their children and as they feast in Passover, they're reminding each other of the stories just as Deuteronomy 6 commands of us to do. And their hearts are stirred up in the memory of God's faithfulness. And so what do they do? They sing. And they sing actually Psalm 117. Now imagine this. This means that Jesus, when he was eating with his disciples, the very last Passover supper that he ever eats, 
he would have been singing Psalm 117. He would have sung Psalm 113 and 114 at the beginning of that meal. And then after they rehearsed the whole story of God's deliverance, his great exodus that Moses led the people of God out of bondage in the Old Testament. As he rehearsed that, what was Jesus doing? He was preparing a greater exodus. He was, a, he was a better Moses who had come to lead people out of a deeper bondage. Not a bondage to Pharaoh or Egypt. Not a geopolitical nation. No, he had come to lead us out of the greatest bondage. The bondage that no one can get out of. The bondage of sin and death. He had come to lead even a greater exodus. As he's rehearsing the story of the first exodus on that last night of the Passover meal, he's preparing to establish the greatest exodus. Do you know what that exodus is? It's already, be, it's already started. If you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, welcome to the exodus. He has freed you from the condemnation of sin. And he has rescued your soul from the grave. And you know, you're going to see the full fruits of that exodus on the day of his return. Because you know what all you and I have seen for our whole lives is people put in the ground and not getting out. And when Jesus returns, we're going to see an exodus like you've never seen. You're going to see the army of the living God come up out of the graves. And you're going to see that Jesus has led a much greater exodus than Moses ever did in the Old Testament. It was just a sign and a figure of what it would be, the essence of the exodus that Jesus himself was leading. Do you see, as you begin to reflect deeply upon these truths of the steadfast love of the Lord, and as the pennies of God's truth drop into your own heart, do you not find that you want to worship him? What a great remembrance that is, that very often in our lives we have to obey, and then along the way we're actually renewed. You know, you came here this morning, you're like, oh, I don't know if I should, you know, be here. This is a waste of my time. And then over the course of the service, as you're singing hymns, as you're praying prayers, as you're listening to the word preached, doesn't something in your heart, believer in Christ, say, I'm glad I came. I'm glad I'm here. Listen, you think you're alone and struggling with these things, don't you? You just think I wake up every day and I'm ready to do this. I hate to burst your bubble. I'm a human being. I'm in need of this as much as you are. To be stirred up in the affections of my love for the Lord. To get myself out of the way. So that I can be faithful to his service and his call. This is the work we need. This is why we need each other, isn't it? It's why God has called us not alone, but he's called us together in this work. To be those who gather in corporate worship. That word literally just means body. To gather as a body, do you believe that the lifeblood of one another is actually running through these relationships? That you actually meet Christ when you meet with each other? That he's at work in the midst of worship as you listen to other people sing hymns? And you listen to someone else speak? And you find that your soul is shot through with peace and joy? And maybe it hasn't experienced that in a long time? That's the body of Christ. God's faithful to use it as he sins and pours out his spirit through the word. You see, this text teaches us that we're mandated to worship and that we have a motivation, a reason to worship when we see a steadfast love. Now, listen, thirdly, you've got to hear this, that there's a mission behind worship. And you see it right there at the opening of this, of this psalm. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, 
all peoples. Now, notice the psalmist here. He's not satisfied with getting a personal blessing. Have you noticed that? He doesn't say, oh, it's enough if the Lord touches my heart and encourages me. No, no, no. He wants to see all the nations know the love of the Lord. He wants to see all the peoples come to know the Lord. There's a mission in his heart behind and in and through his worship. That he's not, in a very real sense, going to be satisfied, content, and restful until the praise of Jesus Christ is known to all the nations. What an amazing mission that's here. The psalmist actually seeds this in the language of the psalm. You see that word extol him statement. Extol him all peoples. That's what Hebrew poetry typically does. Is it repeats itself and it builds on itself. Well, that word extol is an interesting one. You know it's not a Hebrew word. All the other words here in Psalm 117 are Hebrew words. They're typical Hebrew words. Extol him all peoples. It's not. It's in, it's in Aramaic. It's actually in the language that would have been more common in the nations around Israel rather than in Israel. You see what the psalmist is doing? The psalmist is already showing you that I'm actually writing this psalm in order not just that you, Israel, would sing it, but that the vocabulary of the nations would be breaking into it. That people in middle Tennessee might sing to the praise of his glorious grace. Oh, did you forget? You're the nations. Right? You're, you thought you were the people of God here, didn't you? No, not originally. In Psalm 117, this is Israel, God's covenant people. The family that's been given birth now to a nation who we're told through the covenant made with Abraham that all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Do you know that's coming true because you're sitting here today worshiping the Lord? There have been people, men and women, on mission for centuries. And that's the reason you are hearing the gospel today. Don't forget that. That you're, you're actually carried along on the shoulders of people who have been ambassadors and witness bearers in their generation. And there are generations yet to come. And you've been born here so that they might know it then, should the Lord tarry. The beauty here is that we have so much opportunity right here in Middle Tennessee with Nashville growing as a city. With people groups from all over the world coming into our communities. Different kindred, different tribe, different tongues, different nations. And very often, isn't it, we think about our comforts. We may think about it as, well, we don't want to lose our Middle Tennessee way with all these other people coming in. I don't like the traffic any more than you do. But have you thought missionally about it yet? Have you thought about the fact that the Lord is investing in our location at this time with never dying souls who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ? And you do and you're here. That's meaningful. That's meaningful. You're an ambassador. Of him, your first call is to worship him, and your mission behind worship is to share of his glorious grace. You know, that's why we said earlier when you find something worthy of praise, you share it with another. I was joking with the first service that I was in a conversation this week with people talking about mattresses. Yes, queen and king size mattresses, and they were 
They were talking about how theirs was the best, right? One person was looking for a mattress, and these three people were like, oh, you need the Serta, da, 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 you need the sleep number, da, 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 da. And we're talking about it. And what are they doing? They're talking about how their mattress is the best, and they're evangelizing their mattress, and they're wanting this person to adopt their mattress. And I, was sit there, I sat there like 10 minutes in the conversation. I'm like, I'm sick of this. Like, I do not want to hear any more about mattresses. Here, here's the fact. If you have really drunk in deeply from the steadfast love of the Lord and the worship of the Lord is filling your heart, then have you ever, ever even gotten close to the point that one of your neighbors might be nauseated that you're talking so much about Jesus? Has that ever happened? If not, we need to go back to foundational principles. What is it that we worship? What is it that we really care about? You know, there's a question, and you're taking the message home this week. It says, what does your praise have to say about your real commitments? Spend time with that. That's something for all of us here in this room. What does your praise have to say about your real commitments? And then, here you go. Feeling, are you feeling the conviction that I'm feeling with that question? Saying, Lord, I know I've got to do business with you around that question. Now, here's what's beautiful. You have been disobedient, as have I. Let's repent. He calls us to repentance. And he forgives us. He's not going to hold that against you. What's amazing is, as he forgives you, don't you want other people to know a God like that? Doesn't that begin to stir up an evangelistic zeal? Doesn't that begin to make you want to open up your lips to praise the Lord? Would you be content if the nations don't come to know the Lord? Are you content with the 16,000 people groups or however many it is now? And the thousands of people groups who don't even have the Bible in their own language, not knowing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, does that sit okay with you? If it does, friends, we need to stir each other up in the steadfast love of the Lord. And we need to sense and feel the mantle that the Lord has placed upon us for the coming generations and for the salvation of the world. It's just that simple. We need each other in this. When you step towards the evangelism step of sharing the gospel, do you know what you do? <laughs> you step towards the inevitable end of human history. You know, that's what I love about the Bible. It doesn't tell you what's going to happen tomorrow, but it tells you what's going to happen in the end. You don't know what tomorrow's newspaper is, but you know what the good news is at the end of time. And let me read the good news to you. It's in Revelation chapter 7. You don't have to wait to tomorrow's paper. Here's what John writes. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There's your future. There's our future in Christ with the bride of Christ. And the people from all kindred, tribe, tongues, nations, when you share the gospel, you step towards that inevitable future that has been inscribed within the scriptures. Let's step towards that future in faith. And let's trust the Lord to bring all of his people to saving knowledge of him. Father in heaven, we pray to that very end right now. We know that we can't make people come to know the Lord. And 
It's not our eloquence or even, Lord, our zeal that's going to make that happen. But, Lord, we do know that you are fit to use the stumbling mouthpieces and the, the fitful starts and spurts of hearts that are both longing and loving you and then failing to uphold that which you call us to. You even love to use us in that way. Help us to know that you have a people right here and that we are called to share the gospel far and wide and trust that the harvest will be brought in. You tell us that the fields are white and that we're to pray for more laborers. Lord, I have prayed. I know many in this room have prayed. And Lord, I pray that in this room that a big portion of the answer is here in the souls and the lives of your people, becoming devoted to making Christ known. Lord, today is the day of salvation. We're not promised tomorrow. Let the urgency of the eternal matters of the gospel be ever before us as we answer the call and trust you in the work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.